This is the Education Conversation. I'm Ryan Knight. My guest this week is Nirav Kingsland. Nirav is the CEO of the Hastings Fund, a $100 million philanthropy, seated by Reed Hastings, the Netflix CEO. Nirav also writes a blog called The Relinquishment that is one of the most consistently thought-provoking places I read. Nirav is a senior fellow at the Laura and John Arnold Foundation and previously served as the CEO of New Schools for New Orleans. One of the things I love about podcasts that they can help you come to see thought leaders as people. And I think we do that with this conversation. We get into Nirav's personal story, then discuss whether a school's responsibility extends to supporting its graduates. And we speculate on the long path that education technology may take to impact students at scale. As always, I want your feedback and guest suggestions. Email me at ryan at edconvo.com, E-D-C-O-N-V-O. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Okay, let's go. Nira, thank you so much for joining. Excited to be here. Uh, Let's start at the beginning. Why don't you tell me about your experience growing up? Yeah, um, I grew up in a fairly small town, Valparaiso, Indiana, and had a I guess somewhat typical 1980s uh, Midwest upbringing. Uh, if you've seen the show Stranger Things, uh, besides the monsters, that's kind of what my life was like. Uh, it was a great place to grow up. Um, my mother's from India. She was an immigrant um, and got a job as an English professor at the local university. And my dad's African-American um, and ended up becoming a lawyer uh, through that same university. So, you know, diversity was slightly, uh, I was the odd one out in that sense. It was a fairly white town, um, but I had incredible relationships, was treated very well. And so it was, it was just a great place to grow up. I really enjoyed it. You've written before that you never fully identified with either the Indian American community or the African American community. Yeah, that's right. Um, and you know, I kind of had a foot in both worlds, uh, and there are a bunch of different reasons why I think that's the case. Um, a, my friends were, you know, in many cases white, um, and when I did have friends who were of other ethnicities, it was one-off, so, you know, a black friend, a Hispanic friend, but rarely a group setting of all one ethnicity or majority ethnicity that wasn't white. And so I think you're so much molded by who your friends are, uh, that that was a part of it. And then, you know, my mother was uh, connected to the Indian community in Valparaiso, Indiana, but it was about 15 families at the beginning. I think she was actually one of the first three Indian families to move to the city. Uh, and I also didn't speak the language um, because my father uh, only spoke English. My mother didn't teach me Hindi, which made it a little harder to connect in that community. And on the African-American side, you know, again, there wasn't a big population there. Um, 
So in some sense, you know, I think you can get certain things through your parents, uh, but if you're not immersed in a friend group, um, I, I don't know that you'll ever, at least for me personally, um, felt that I was uh, deeply connected uh, at an emotional, intellectual level with those cultures. Um, I've learned a lot from them. I've been to India, I've been to Africa, and they're definitely a part of who I am. And I don't feel white in any sense. Uh, I just feel mm -hmm. different. Um, and you know, maybe just a unique product of that upbringing. Was that feeling of difference a big part of your childhood or did it emerge later? I don't think it really was. I think uh, I was, I didn't, uh, I, I don't even know if difference uh, is the right word, you know, not like the other, uh, but not in an oddball sense, just in a different, um, in a benign sense of the world. You know, I thrived in uh, high school. I was president of my high school, so there was, weren't any social uh, ramifications. I will say, you know, one thing looking back on that experience, um, now that I've seen more of racism and prejudice and, uh, you know, the devastation of low expectations, there's definitely a bifurcated view, I think, of race in the town I grew up in, where if you got good grades and you were successful, you know, we called it the Tiger Woods effect, like everybody loved you. Uh, and you could thrive, but if you weren't, and if you struggled, uh, or you didn't get good grades, I do think there was uh, both implicit and explicit racism um, in a way that people who are white, uh, who had those same problems, weren't treated as poorly. Um, so in some ways, I think I benefited from that bifurcation of racial attitudes in a way looking back uh, I don't think was as healthy as I uh, originally felt growing up. Black exceptionalism? Yeah. So when you were making the decision to go to college, were you trying, was it a getting out moment for you? It definitely was, but man, was it an uninformed getting out. Uh, <laughs> I had no idea where I would thrive in college or how to make that decision. Um, and so I applied to a bunch of places and basically made it for a combination of getting out and financial reasons. Um, you know, I took a notch down in status and elitism uh, for close to a full ride uh, and went to Tulane down in New Orleans, uh, somewhat on a lark, to be honest, mm -hmm. and it ended up changing my life. Um, you know, so I... You never know how it's going to work out, but I think in my case, not following the meritocratic, you know, gristmill uh, ended up having really positive impact on my life and, in a certain sense, uh, subjecting yourself to little randomization and external shocks, I think, can be healthy, and college was that for me. So you arrived not knowing exactly what to expect. Was there a moment when you realized yeah, this is going to change my life? No, not at all. Um, <laughs> you know, at, with the Indian mother, I started off pre-med. That lasted uh, for about a semester. Then I became an English major, uh, which she couldn't totally hold over me, given that she was an English professor herself. Uh, and, you know, embarked on literature, and I did a lot of creative writing, um, a little political science as well. 
Uh, and then uh, the social scene, the music scene, uh, the nightlife in New Orleans uh, surely drew me in. Uh, so it's just a lot, you know, your brain was getting pinged in a lot of different ways. And I think the positive of it is it pushed me to understand the world in a different place, New Orleans, which is so different than Valparaiso, Indiana. Mm -hmm. It got me into education. It exposed me to the horrors of, you know, some of what was going on in public schooling in America that I didn't really understand in attending public schools in Indiana. Um, you know, the negatives, I think, and I put some of this on my own shoulders, I don't know that it was at all times the most intellectually stimulating experience. And when I got to law school, I had some catch up to do. Uh, so I think I gained high on the experiences, maybe a little less so on the academics. So if you stepped out of the elite race uh, to go to college, you stepped back into it for law school. Yeah, and it was it was a big jump. I the year after I graduated college, I uh, was actually waiting tables in the French Quarter, and lived in New Orleans for another year. And this was only because the English department of Tulane would not hire me to be a secretary. Um, <laughs> that was how, how much worth my English major degree had. Uh, they wouldn't hire me back to be a secretary of the department because I couldn't pass the typing test in the HR department of <laughs> Tulane. <laughs> so I was you know, waiting tables in the French Quarter, um, got into Yale, went there, and I was behind, um, you know, my experience had been Tulane to the French Quarter. Other people's experiences had been, you know, Harvard to Goldman Sachs or Yale to the UN. You know, it, mm -hmm. people were ahead of me. They'd had more life experiences. They were wiser um, in the global sense of the world. I think they were smarter than I was. Um, and so it was some catch up. And I look back on that time with mixed feelings. I think on one hand, it really raised my game, which was really good. On the other hand, I don't think I maximized the experience because I was a little uh, immature, both intellectually and emotionally. Um, and in hindsight, I wish I'd spent more time um, intellectually exploring, maker deeper in friendships, uh, building more relationships with professors. Uh, so mixed feelings, uh, but the school was amazing. Uh, the students were amazing. And I think what I appreciated more than anything is they just always said yes. Um, so I ended up living in Sierra Leone for six months because I took a summer to work there and wanted to stay and stay a part of that effort. And I literally just emailed the, the um, career department or the financial aid department. I was like, hey, I'd like to take a semester off and do this. And they were like, sure, we'll see you in January. Uh, we were supposed to write a 100-page legal article to graduate and about a year in, I was like, that sounds dreadful and not me. And so I asked if I could write a novel instead. And they said, yeah, sure, go for it. Um, it's just a high trust that they'd selected a group of people who were not going to take advantage of the system, but use the flexibility and autonomy to do uh, interesting things. And you know, I tried to live up to my side of the bargain and just so appreciated how they let us follow our passion and interest. When I um, went to college, I experienced a feeling that I would describe as similar of, um, you know, being behind people and not knowing how to deal with that emotionally and intellectually. And it was a really formative time for me in terms of 
having something that I could draw on to recognize when I was heading down that path emotionally in the future and what specific things I needed to be able to do in order to maintain that balance in my life. Do you draw uh, like emotional lessons from your time at law school? That's a great question. I think maybe if I was wiser, I would have. Um, (laughs) I think what has happened to me over time is my competitive advantage in certain ways is constant learning. Less so is it being able to predict uh, what I need to do to be successful before I start. And so I'd say that's been uh, happened numerous times where I throw myself into situations that I might not be ready for, or that had I prepared for them better, I could have succeeded more off the bat. For some reason, I just really struggle with foresight. Uh, but I think I am very good at recognizing my weaknesses, learning quickly, um, and scaling the ladder in whatever situation I'm in. And so, in some sense, I view my life and progression as big leaps, big falls, kind of catching up. I will say, as I've gotten older, that cycle uh, has modulated uh, in a good way in a little bit, where I think the ups and downs are a little lower, just because I have more experiences to draw on that are applicable to more leadership situations. Um, So the downs are a little less down (laughs) as I've gone throughout my career. Uh, But looking back, I would say that has been a pattern. So then did you go directly back to New Orleans after law school? Yeah, with uh, and it wasn't quite after law school. It was in uh, the latter part of law school, Katrina hit. And so I was in my last year, and I ended up just moving down to New Orleans. So I was on an off cycle because I'd taken that semester off to work in Sierra Leone, was graduating in January, signed up for my classes. Uh, This one I didn't ask for permission for and just kind of did it, moved to New Orleans. Uh, I worked at New Schools for New Orleans, which was just getting off the ground at the time for half my time. And then they let me study, quote unquote, the other half of the time. And then I ended up flying back to Yale to take my finals, uh, which I I don't think I impressed any professors uh, with that performance, but they were kind enough to graduate me. Um, So for that August to January, I was half and half, and then starting January, I was uh, full-time at New Schools for New Orleans. It's a remarkable degree of support from Yale. I also went to grad school at Yale at the School of Management. And so much of the experience there seemed to be um, time to experiment with stuff and to try stuff as much as it was time um, to learn in the classroom. And I uh, think that it's an interesting model that our most elite institutions sometimes just give their students uh, freedom to do things and have them not work <laughs> um, or to, you know, try something different and uh, to not sort of have that urgent accountability um, that you might have in a, in a, in a job. Yep. The only caveat is that we're paying $45,000 a year for the luxury of, <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> of them giving us freedom. So who the customer is in certain ways, I think, dictates that relationship as well. So tell me about returning to New Orleans. Um, 
It was great, if not very foreign. You know, when you're at Tulane, you're in a bubble uh, for better or for worse, you know, in many ways for worse, you're not integrated into the city. And so while I knew the landscape of the city and, you know, could socially integrate, I don't think I was really prepared for working in the city just because I'd gone there. Um, mm. And, you know, there were hurdles to overcome. New Schools for New Orleans was a startup. Uh, Sarah Houston was an incredible entrepreneur who got it off the ground. But, you know, she wrote a one-page business plan in her attic while her whole house was flooded. And so we had to turn that initial vision into an organization. And that was bumpy. Um, I had to learn a lot. You know, I joke that in law school, they teach you only one thing matters, whether you're right or wrong. And as soon as you're working in an organization, um, there are many more dynamics other than being right. And I was pretty poorly equipped to learn how to influence, how to manage people, how to coach people. Um, I was not very smart in organizational uh, leadership um, and culture and managing those. And I don't think I was very smart in politics either, how to work across coalitions that existed in the city, uh, especially along uh, race, class, and so forth. Um, and lastly, I didn't know much about education. Um, I'd never taught. Uh, I'd never been a school leader. Um, I'd worked on education policy fairly extensively, uh, but not in the school. Um, so I was in an organization that was brand new in a city that I didn't fully understand the political landscape and in a field where I really didn't understand what it took to be a great school. Uh, and so that led me, you know, into three to four years of really catch up again. Uh, and I think eventually I got there, um, but made some mistakes along the way, and it, and it took me a little while to get there. How did you decide to cast your lot in with this um, one-page business plan startup? You know, this is, again, the random way things work. I, mean, I think you have to put yourself out there, but you never know what's going to hit and when. So we created a law clinic at Yale to help in a variety of efforts post-Katrina New Orleans, which again was awesome at Yale. They created a credit-bearing class overnight because some mm. students said we wanted to help after Katrina. Um, and I joined up with that clinic. I came down to see what I could do in education. I met a principal of a school and on her board was Sarah Houston. And so Sarah came out to coffee when I was meeting with that principal. And then Sarah said, hey, I'm starting this organization. Um, would you help? I said, sure. Uh, she said, well, will you help write the bylaws and the articles of incorporation? I said, yes, despite I don't think ever having seen an article of incorporation or bylaws in my life, um, <laughs> but thought I could figure it out. And that's how it started. Um, and so started as kind of free labor to her um, and, you know, to, I'm internally grateful for both her and Matt Candler, who uh, ended up being the initial C of the O of the organization, of taking a chance on me, um, knowing that I didn't have the content knowledge yet. Uh, but I guess they saw something there, and it ended up working out well. And so you grew with the organization. Exactly. And, you know, these are things that, again, I think I just got really lucky The if I had gone to like New York City and started as like a mid-level manager in an education reform organization that was big and established, it would have just been such a different trajectory. Um, 
to go to a city that you know literally had lost half its population um, in a startup uh, in such a chaotic environment, the amount of problems I had to solve, the amount of things we had to work through, I just got so much more experience. And there's just such an ethos of, if you have an idea, run with it, lead with it. Um, that I think, you know, in those eight years post Katrina, I probably got 30 years worth of experience. Um, and, you know, I think about that. And, you know, when I talk to people now who are early on in their careers, I do think catching an organization that has a chance to make a big impact and being a part of those early stages, there's really just nothing like it because you're not going to get that at a big company or even a medium-sized company. And, uh, you know, I think the downside risk is a lot of those blow up a year later. Um, and I just mm. happened to catch one that ended up growing into uh, what I think has been a really impactful organization and in some ways set a model for organizations like it across the country and uh, yeah, spent eight years of my life in that. So what do you mean uh, by uh, the learning is greater there? Is it that if you go into an established organization, you're learning, best case, how to make things happen within existing structures versus learning how to create structures? Exactly. So I think there's, so the benefit of being at a well-run big company is you see best practices in shape. Um, and that's of use. Um, the benefit of being in a small startup is you have to create those things. Uh, so you have to create a goal setting process. You have to create a strategic plan, an operational plan. You have to do the budget. Like there are just so many things you have to figure out. Um, and the experience of doing those things is not without risk because you often don't know what you're doing. Um, but wow, do you learn a lot very quickly when you have to mentally work through why everything needs to be the way it is rather than tweak something that already exists. Uh, I've, as I've grown within an organization, I've uh, experienced that to some extent where, you know, back in the day I was making our teacher evaluations and making our budgets and making our strategic plan and all of these things that I was uh, you, you know, that I was filling a gap sort of that I didn't have that, um, you know, degree in talent that would give me all this context to create a, a teacher evaluation tool. And the things that I made were, you know, not nearly as good as what we have now that we're at the scale that we can have people that focus on it. And so there's a couple of things that have happened to me, and I'm interested to hear if they would happen to you as well. One has been a... Um, a sharpening of expertise where I've learned which of those things I was really good at and focused more on them. Um, and the other was uh, learning which decisions I thought were going to be right that turned out to not be right. <laughs> yep. And trying to figure out how to fix them. Yep. Yeah, I, uh, uh, totally resonates, you know. One of the best pieces of advice I got um, when I was uh, entering the CEO ship at New Schools for New Orleans was from my board chair, a great guy named Stephen Rosenthal. And I, I'm going to get this mostly right. He said, um, to be a great CEO, you need to understand exactly what your company 
what skills your company needs to be great. And you need to be an A or a B, um, you know, in the top 20% of the country in each of those functions. Um, and one to two of those functions, you need to be in the top 1%. Um, and his point there was basically you as the executive need to be absolutely amazing at one to two core functions of your org, or you shouldn't be the CEO. And you need to be competent in every important function because you're going to have to manage a management team on those areas and you need to be able to give them feedback. And then in those areas where you're hiring on the management team, your goal should be to hire somebody who's in the top one to two percent of every function that you're not, but that you are in the top 20 percent in. And that really shaped me. So, you know, those experiences, you know, from, you know, age 18 to 30 or whatever, I think that should be in the back of your head. What are the one to two things I have a chance at being better at than anybody else in the country or, you know, some, some level like that, not to be grandiose? And then how do I shape my role around that? And then to the extent I'm building a team, how do I hire around the areas that are vital, but I'm not that? You know, I think for me, the two things that ended up spiking were strategy and communications. Um, so taking strategy, a bunch of complicated variables, finding the two to three levers to pull and pushing on those hard. And then communications, um, taking very complicated stories, simplifying them into principles and articulating that in a way that people can understand. And so I shaped my role around that at New Schools for New Orleans and the other areas that were extremely important I tried to hire people for. Do you have an example of um, a problem that you would say that you tackled well strategically? Yeah, you know, I think ultimately at New Schools for New Orleans, we ended both with the right theory of change and the right strategy. So our theory of change was structural and systems level um, rather than programmatic. So our theory was not New Orleans would be better if we had a better after-school reading program or a better teacher evaluation system or a better math curriculum. It was if we get the government to be a highly effective regulator and we allow nonprofits to create their own programs and there's some sense of uh, competition and entrepreneurship with guardrails in a public system, that creating that structure would be the ultimate engine that created a system of constant learning and growth rather than finding the one silver bullet programmatically. And I think that was right. Um, and then at New Schools for New Orleans, we had to figure out how to make that come to be. So it's one thing to have the idea, which to be honest, wasn't totally novel. Um, people have been talking about uh, these types of education systems probably since the 50s. It's another thing to actualize it. And we ended up with focusing on three levers. Um, one was school development, launching and scaling great nonprofit schools. Second was talent, um, recruiting, supporting, and training great teachers and leaders. And third was advocacy, um, building the coalitions to sustain the transitions. And so I think being able to lock down on systems level change and then being able to pick the right levers, schools, talent, and advocacy to enact that change all turned out to be roughly right. So those are all questions that an organization needs to answer and reconsider periodically, but they're not sort of um, strategic decisions that you're making month to month or quarter to quarter. Correct. Yep. 
would you say that the sort of more uh, how am I going to actualize this theory of change is also a strategic strength of yours? It's a good question. I think it's grown. Um, I think I would have been, I would have said definitely no, um, you know, coming out of law school. You know, if you think of a spectrum of like ivory tower to hyper aggressive operationally focused CEO, you know, so Yale Law professor on one side, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk on the other. In some sense, my career progression has been has moved uh, further and further down the spectrum away from the law professor and towards the executive. And so I've been building that toolkit. I don't think I'm good enough yet. Um, but I think you quickly understand that if you are hyper-focused on the goals you're trying to achieve, so much of it just ends up being about execution and you have to sweat everything. And so, uh, you know, you move from Word to PowerPoint to spreadsheets on some level, and I would say much of my life is dominated by spreadsheets these days. You mentioned another strength being communication, and one of the uh, communication sort of concepts that you are identified with is this idea of relinquishment. Would you just give us the intro to relinquishment? Sure, Um, and I'll tell you the mistakes I made before I came up with that too. So I think I very wrongly uh, at the beginning focused way too much on words like competition, entrepreneurship, um, and so forth, because uh, I believed in those things. Um, but they just only resonate with a certain sector of the public. Uh, and I was just kind of uh, blind and or deaf ear to how that was being perceived. Um, and then eventually you mess up enough and, you know, you get it. And it's like, I need a better way to talk about it. That is still true, because I think, you know, one of the key points of communication I deeply believe in, that if it's not true, it, it doesn't matter what the spin is. Eventually, um, you're not going to be influential over the long term. So I wanted to talk about it in a different way, um, but still be exactly true about it and, and not be spinning it. And... I also wanted to figure out a way to work with the left more. You know, I am, you know, a member of the Democratic Party uh, and was just finding that Republicans and conservatives were gravitating towards these ideas and the center left kind of was and the far left not really. And so I went through the thought process of how could I talk about what I deeply believe in that I think embodies these liberal values in a way that will resonate with the people who are on the fence right now. And so that's where I came up with relinquishment in terms, instead of talking about uh, how we need to you know, create market forces, it was how do we think about transferring power back to the people who are at the heart of the education system. So in my mind, uh, you know, superintendents and bureaucracies had for, held way too much power that was stifling change. And I thought if they relinquished power back to educators so that they could run their own schools, relinquished power back to families so they could choose the schools that were right for their kid, uh, that A, that would make things better, and B, that that language might resonate, that handing power back to the powerless um, is a concept idea, has emotional resonance with liberals that uh, I thought might stick. And, you know, in some sense, I, I think it has. 
What I one of the things that I like about the idea is that it doesn't sound easy. <laughs> yep. Um, and you know, to relinquish has some degree of of sacrifice to it, or to giving up. Yeah. And I think that that matches the experience that we've seen in a lot of district offices where the um, percentage of students who are attending a district school within a city has decreased, um, that that is a very difficult thing to deal with, um, that it's emotionally very hard to deal with having a smaller district office with mm-hmm. you know having your budget shrink instead of grow. And that folks who are on the charter side where you are growing, and that's a lot easier to do emotionally. It's exciting. You get to think about what services you want to add, what new things you want to do. Um, Just the, the, you know, I've seen it in like personal friends of mine, the the difficulty of making those tough decisions can really shape the politics of um, your decisions and uh, like sort of what you believe is right in a situation. Yep. I think, you're exactly right, and I think I under I underappreciated that when I was on the other side. Um, so now I'm not, you know, directly in the New Orleans game anymore. And when I was at New Schools for New Orleans, I was on the growth side, and so it was grow, 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 provide great options, go. And I don't think I internalized the pain of the other side. And given that you know those aren't competitors, this is all one public system. Uh, I think that was a mistake. Uh, and now I see that much more clearly. Layoffs are hard, um, transitions are hard, and I think there's ways to do it that are much more thoughtful than other ways. So the big mistake I see districts make is they make no decisions for five to seven years, and then they have to close 30 schools and you know let go of 10% of their central office because they haven't been responding. In most cities, the rate of charter growth is less than the rate of transition and personnel on the district side. So, you know, in many of these urban districts, teachers are turning over at 20% of a year. Central office turnover is pretty high too. So if you're thoughtful and you just don't rehire when you see charter growth coming, I think there are ways to do this that are much less painful than the do nothing and then make draconian cuts that will inevitably have negative impact on kids. And you know, I think a bright spot here for me, if you said, what are the two highest performing public urban districts in the country? Uh, you might say Washington, D.C., and you might say Denver. And those are two cities that have seen dramatic charter growth over the past decade. Uh, so I th- definitely believe that you can do both, that charters can increase and the district can get better. I think you can do that in ways that are win-win for families, uh, but it's not inevitable and it takes good leadership. One of the um, theories that has risen in importance in my mind after this last election is, you know, unsurprisingly, identity politics and the way that your communication strategy interplays with people's, with the different aspects of people's identity. And so relinquishment is smart because it's uh, activating sort of a sort of benevolent um, or like a, um, 
you know, I, I am in a position of power and with that power comes great responsibility and I'm going to use that responsibility wisely type of identity. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen the education reform sector, you know, the reasons that so many of us come to work in that sector sector are often around social justice. But in our communication strategy, we're often very careful to avoid promoting education reform issues through a social justice lens for fear of accusing district partners or teachers um, in district schools who are great and are doing great work and we have personal relationships with of being on the wrong side of a social justice issue. And I wonder, especially given the results in Massachusetts of um, the defeat of a charter expansion law there, where uh, the uh, pro-charter groups assiduously avoided any sort of social justice language in their um, communications. Um, I, I wonder about how the education reform movement should think about which identities it wants to activate in progressives if it wants to retain progressives as yeah, we see I, this increased polarization. It's a good question. I don't know the answer. It's something I've definitely struggled with. Um, so in Massachusetts, they didn't. You know, in New York, they have. They've gone after de Blasio, right. who's a liberal figurehead and said, you know, you're failing black and brown kids and how dare you say you're a progressive and basically put kids in jail cells for 12 years. I mean, they're using very aggressive language. Um, and I do think it's had some effect. Like, I think it's put him on his heels a bit at times. Um, I, What you draw from those two counterexamples, I really don't know. Um, I imagine it's going to end up being pretty idiosyncratic. You know, what works in New York politics and what you can get away with is going to be different than Oakland. Uh, but I guess all I can say is I think you've put your finger on important tension and I don't really know what's optimal. So I'm interested to hear within your framework um, what the social responsibilities of the different actors are. Um, so what is a school's social responsibility? if that question makes sense. (laughs) Sure. So, you know, in our construct, a school has two sets of obligations um, that are hopefully generally aligned, but not necessarily, um, especially in the charter context. One is to the source of funding. So, you know, uh, to your authorizer, I guess if you're a district school, to your district central office, that's a relationship, and then you have the families you serve. Um, and so I think you know the upward accountability, there's some uh, baseline fiduciary um, responsibility to be good stewards of tax dollars and to hit the objectives that's been set forth by the state, and you know most of that's test-based accountability in our world. Um, but I'd like to think that those are the floor of a school's responsibility and that you know great schools don't stop there. I think what has been so powerful about the charter movement, the best of the charter movement, is that it has internalized the responsibility <coughs> to getting kids um, to be meaningful, have meaningful lives, safe lives, healthy lives, more so than any education initiative that we've perhaps seen at scale. Um, you know, the idea that Kip through college was created 
because Kip saw not enough of its kids were thriving in college that they had hoped, instead of turning their eyes away from that and just celebrating their test scores, which is all they need to do technically based on their duty to the government or state, they said, no, we have a higher duty to kids and Kip through college needs to be born. Like how many school districts have school district X through college, <laughs> you know, they don't, aren't incentivized, structured culturally for some reason that insane um, commitment to following a kid through and doing whatever it takes, I think has been best, best modeled by uh, some of our charters. So this is um, a, a really interesting area for me uh, because, you know, Kip started with middle schools and then they were doing graduate support for high schools and then they opened high schools and then they started graduating graduate support in college. And now that they have more students graduating college, they're even thinking about, you know, job placement type of support. Right. You don't want so them where, running retirement homes at the end of right, the day. Where right. does that responsibility <laughs> end? It's a great question. I also think there's a paternalism you have to be careful of if you feel so accountable. Um, I think there's almost, you can undermine your mission by not allowing people to become who they are, fail, make the mistakes. Um, and ultimately, I, you know, I don't think it's a school organization's responsibility to make sure somebody at 45, you know, has got a promotion or, or what have you. Um, so I don't quite know where it ends. You know, I think supporting and preparing through college um, makes sense. Into jobs, I, you know, at some point, I think you have to worry about mission and strategy creep. Uh, and I think at some point, you maybe the answer is you need to help be a part of seeding seating a solution that's separate, you know, than who you are. So I don't think it would be healthy for most of these orgs to go too far up uh, the age bracket. Um, and if we need better solutions for 22, 23, and 24 year olds, um, maybe the people we work with can point to what those solutions might be. But I think that's a separate movement with separate entrepreneurs, ultimately. I tend to be a believer in single-purpose organizations. Mm -hmm. um, so to the extent that KIPP sees its students being underprepared for college, they're, you know, and they have a marginal dollar to spend on that topic, I would tend towards them spending it on making their schools better to make their schools better prepared for the entryway, but also to have a better handshake with a single purpose organization that does do college supports, right? So not every, every you know, district doesn't have, you know, their district through college, but there's a lot of posse-like organizations that do exist to support students through college. And I, I think that what we've seen here is just an, uh, that sector is underdeveloped and there needs to be more work in there. I agree. You know, we're thinking about this in New Orleans a lot and I think I agree with your second premise, but I'm not sure at the moment I would agree with your first. So your second premise that we need to build infrastructure, a sector and akin to what we have in charter schools for post-secondary, I agree with. Where the best marginal dollar is spent right now, given that that infrastructure doesn't exist, is a really tough question. So I was back in New Orleans last week, 
and had this conversation with a bunch of folks and you know we're 10 years in in New Orleans so is the marginal dollar of philanthropy trying to squeeze out another 3% improvement out of KIPP in New Orleans? Uh, or is it better spent on trying to create something that's 10x better in the post-secondary world than what we already have? Another way to say it is we already made the 10x play in K-12 in New Orleans. And I, there's only so much you can squeeze out of that at this point. I don't think we've yet made the 10x play in post-secondary, and I wonder if that's where the low-hanging fruit is right now. I agree with that. I think, though, that if that's your goal as a funder, giving that money to somebody who wakes up every morning and is going to solve that as an entrepreneur would be more attractive to me than giving it to schools to to try to each independently develop that expertise. Got it. You know, Match uh, Beyond might be uh, an example of, you know, a potential solution where the answer is born out of the charter community because they know the kids, they know the problem, but then you end up ultimately spinning out a separate org to do that work, you know, with their doing the community college two-year intensive tutoring program there. Yeah, exactly. So um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about education technology. Um, Some education reformers have looked at um, the defeat of question two in Massachusetts and other indicators and thought that the growth of charter schools is not likely to continue at the same pace as it has in the past. And therefore, education technology into all schools um, maybe it, it sort of raises in status um, as, as a reform strategy. What are your thoughts on that? So I'm excited about where the world is heading in ed tech and I think the pieces are starting to come together a little bit more. I am very hesitant to say ed tech is a substitution for governance change, because I think in the best world they're mutually supportive. So if you have governance systems level reform where nonprofits are operating the schools, A, I think you'll get more innovative tech solutions coming out. Like it's not shocking to me that the first whole school platform came out of Summit, a charter school and not a district. And two, I think adoption uptake is easier in the nonprofit community than it is in the district community. So I think the best version of tech is enabled by good governance, um, and I don't think it's a substitution. That being said, um, governance reform has a long uh, path ahead of it. Uh, you know, there's one New Orleans right now, um, and so I don't think we can assume in the next decade, you know, we'll have the structures that I think we should have, and so. In certain ways, tech can add marginal users much quicker. Um, the things I'm most bullish on on tech right now are whole school platforms. Uh, I don't quite know where this will head, but I could surely picture a world where, you know, if summits are first model at scale or getting to scale in whole school platform, that over the next 20 years, I don't know what the exact number would be, call it 10, 15. I don't think it would be a winner take all, but maybe 20 platforms are out there. 
um, that our whole school models that a charter or a district or a private school could use as their instructional curricular student-facing teacher-facing platform and then I think school choice becomes twofold one is who is the operator is it a government is it a nonprofit and then what platform are they on you know are they on the summit platform the Montessori platform the no excuses charter platform uh, whatever else might be out there and the way, you know, Montessori is a low-tech version of this. You kind of know what you're getting with Montessori. I don't mm -hmm. think you kind of know what you're getting with your average public school right now. And so I think platforms will be a way of codification and branding and choice uh, that in the best version of the world will increase options for families, will increase fidelity to good models, and will allow more educators to succeed with those models because the tech platform is putting some guardrails on decision making. And this is interesting. In our last uh, podcast, we just had a ed tech CEO and we were talking about exactly this question. So you see it evolving in a, um, the metaphor that we were using is a Swiss army knife uh, direction where you have sort of one thing and that has all of your different tools inside of it versus a tool belt approach where a teacher is you know reaching for taking out whichever tool they need at the moment they're reaching for their behavior platform uh, to record behaviors they're reaching for their grade book to record grade books they're reaching for their blended learning to do the blended learning time so you would see it evolving more in the swiss army approach where you're logging onto one platform and that's doing all of the all of the main functions of the school? I am, uh, and you know, these are all guesses. Right. I think we'll need both in that we'll need good content creation that's not tied to whole school model. But my hunch is we need whole school models to put it all together for people. So I think, you know, it depends, but I'm worried about your average principal instead of teachers having to cobble together a bunch of resources in a coherent way without kind of creating a blended learning Frankenstein. And I also worry that you lose the ability of um, harnessing data if everybody is idiosyncratically making their own choices. And so think of a great platform as having guardrails on on coherency, like it's saying these things work together around this theory of education and this philosophy of education. And that's important that all the pieces are coherent and congruent with each other. To the extent that like exit tickets, weekly assessments, interim assessments are all on one platform, the amount of data going back and forth between the platform owner and the school is really high, which should make the system much smarter over time. And then the platform owner becomes to be the curator of the resources. So it will say for this standard and this objective, here's a con video, here's a, you know, two pages out of a textbook and a Wikipedia article or whatever. And there'll be guardrails on the resources around the lesson itself. So my hunch is you're basically centralizing a bunch of decision making around curricular and content and you are shifting the role of the teacher away from content and curricular creation, decision-making to coach, mentor, tutor, and so forth. Um, and that's where this will head. 
uh, and that the whole school model is a way to put it all together to increase um, performance through some standardization. So my worry with this model is that um, I have this belief and I've tried to look back through the research to figure out where it came from. <laughs> I haven't found it exactly. So maybe when I find it, I'll do a show with whoever actually wrote it. But I, I have this belief that um, when you when a new technology is introduced to an industry, it is adopted first by the highest productivity firms and it causes the highest productivity firms to become even more high productivity and to grow their market share and can accelerate the exit of low productivity firms. And then there may be new entrants who enter using the, the technology at a high productivity level. But that the mechanism through which a new technology increases the productivity of, of an industry is that one of um, high product being leveraged by high productivity firms to grow even more instead of making everyone more product productive. And I worry that that may be the case in education. So that could very well be true in the private sector. I don't know the research. <clears throat> I think there's a couple things that are different in public education that separate it from what we might see in the private sector. One is that scale is just much harder. Um, you know, the largest charter organizations um, are 50 to 100,000 kids right now, and we only have two to three of those that are good at that size. For some reason, I'm not sure if it's because of culture, because of bureaucracy and regulatory, because of lack of profit motive, we don't see winner-take-all dynamics nationally. You sometimes see them in cities. Um, but whatever allows Facebook to dominate, um, you know, minimal operations, uh, no cost for marginal user, software-based, like we're not in that game. Uh, we're in a highly regulated, highly operational, um, no-profit world, which leads me to believe that the highest productivity schools will not scale to serve two to three million kids. So if that's true, I think we need to accept that condition and probably think about a how do small to medium-sized school organizations still succeed without having those characteristics and then is there any way to improve existing organizations and not just do pure creative destruction that you know everybody closes and then reopens uh and those are hard questions. You know, there's a tension between innovation and stability. And in some parts of society, we have chose to index solely on innovation. And in some parts of society, we have made decisions that are 100% about stability. And I think we need to find that sweet spot for public education. And I think it's somewhere between those poles. But I don't think we should expect the dynamism of the private sector in the public sector, um, even if we want to move it along the spectrum a little bit. Yeah, I agree. And that's part of what makes me more, um, I call myself cautiously optimistic about educational technology, where 
I could see easily for schools that are already very good and high performing, um, them being really good or school management organizations or districts or whoever it is that's, um, you know, the operator, um, being very good at that curator type of role that you were describing for the platform owner, where you're making informed decisions about which content to push in which cases, um, I think the best schools already do that, and this would just be a way to make that easier for them. I don't know, though, that if a school isn't good at that already, that having the technology somehow ma makes that easier, makes you know, makes them better at that. So I see it as a potentially increasing the inequality um, across schools uh, without necessarily leading to the types of change that the sort of more tech evangelists would would that's propose. fair i i'm generally in your boat i do think i you know for lack of uh a better numerical system if the best schools in the country are a 10 out of 10 and the median schools a five out of 10 if we if it's going to take us 40 years to scale the 10 out of 10s and in the next 10 years, you know, we can take the five out of tens and make them six out of tens through platforms. That's real improvement in kids' lives. And so I think that's the short-term potential. So one question that I ask all of my guests is uh, to recommend one idea or organization or individual who you think is undervalued and deserves more recognition apart from things that you've personally worked on? Yeah, you know, one thing now in my, you know, working in philanthropy that I wouldn't have expected was underappreciated, but I think it is, um, is the idea of scale. And I don't know, you know, there might be cultural ways in this within the industry uh, where, um, you know, people at one point are thinking really big and then everybody's like, no, it's about one school and one classroom. And I've been surprised how, not, I wouldn't necessarily say how few, but maybe not as many as I would have expected. People who are pitching me have not done the hard work of saying, if this succeeds, how will it be programmatically, financially, and politically sustainable at scale? Um, and I think that's a really important discipline that is not yet spread through our industry as much as I think it needs to. That could be an advertisement for this podcast. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Fair, exactly. That's like the fundamental question that I am trying to work through with my guests is, their ideas about scale, how they are individually trying to scale things and how they believe their ideas will scale because it's ultimately what we're trying to do. Yep. And, you know, I think it's in that sense, a moral imperative, um, an intellectual responsibility to do the hard work of painting that picture. Now, you know, when you're starting something up or you're midway, you might pivot, you never know what's going to happen but to just say i don't know and not even like have a best case thought about what your theory is uh yeah on some level it's irresponsible and so i think i just wish in some sense we'd increase our ambition um 
and if that means increasing our time horizon, that's okay too. Uh, but you know, I very recently had coffee with the CEO of Bridge Academies, the international organization, and their goal is 10 million kids. And you know, that was a shot in the arm for me to make me check myself on this whole thing of am I being ambitious enough or thinking about enough scale? Uh, so again, yeah, I think you need to have that. Um, and then I think you have to have to have the humility um, that as you work towards scale, you're constantly checking yourself, making sure you're achieving the results you thought you'd achieve, um, and then exiting if you don't ultimately do that. Uh, but I think that needs to be the end goal. I was just about to bring up Bridge Academies um, and to push you on that uh, in that way. Um, you blog about your personal giving, and with your personal philanthropy, you give internationally, um, but you work uh, domestically. So if you believe that international work, you know, for the reasons of scale, for the reasons of cost effectiveness is the best use of your marginal personal dollar, why is that not the best use of your time? Um, it very well might be. Um, so I think there's a couple different factors here. Uh, one is uh, my own personal desires and the life I want to lead. And I have worked internationally before. It doesn't mean I won't go back to that. Um, but there's a comfort uh, and joy of living in the United States. Uh, it's where my social relations are that I think would be very hard for me to give up and just go work internationally for 30 years now. That just might be sheer selfishness, uh, but I'm human and <laughs> it's surely there. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had to make the best case for why there's a difference between my time and my money, it would be my money can back people who know what they're doing in other countries in a way I don't know. Um, and I can probably make more money working in the U.S. than I can internationally, perhaps. And so that increases my leverage on my international giving. Uh, and then the last thing, I don't know if I buy this or not, but the United States has an outsized influence in the world. Um, and as you know, current conditions are showing, the health of our democracy and the health of our society has immense global implications. So in that sense, I think you know, there might be a base level utilitarian case to make that keeping the United States healthy is up there and on par, if not greater than international giving. I think that's a great place to wrap this up. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Your questions were great, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you to Nira for this conversation. One point I wasn't able to make in the show, because we were disconnected. If you believe the story we were spinning, that the path for ed tech to create impact at scale is by helping schools that are a 7 out of 10 get to a 10 out of 10, and then those 10 out of 10 schools grow through governance changes. That changes the way you should think about EdTech as a user, as a purchaser, as a seller, and as a developer. If this story is true, the essential problem that EdTech is trying to solve is that there are 7 out of 10 schools out there that could be a 10 out of 10 with great software. Okay, enough commentary. I'm on Twitter at RGKnight, and Nirav is at Nirav Kingsland. Rate us on iTunes, tell a friend, and send your guest suggestions to ryan at edconvo.com. Our theme song is Quit in Time by Patrick Lee.